I'm Jonathan Mosin and this is Mosin at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. Today, WWDC is still a couple of weeks away, but Apple has made some big announcements already. Technology's great when it works, a story of a computer update going badly wrong, and so much more. Mosin at Large Podcast. Welcome. Nice to have you back for another installment of the show. It has been a busy weekend at Mosin Towers because we have had my son David's 21st birthday. And if you've been listening to my shows over the years, you may even remember when he was born because I was doing internet radio then. I remember interviewing his big brother who was two years old when David was born. That's Richard, who's gone on to do some shows on Mushroom FM, of course, subsequently. And I was trying to ask him how he felt about being a big brother. This was on the old Blind Line show. And all he kept saying was, put Barney on, put Barney on. He just wanted to watch Barney. He didn't want to talk about his little brother. And I have a recording of that. And I have a recording of a lot of things, as I've been saying over the last week or so. I just am so grateful that I took the time to record so much of my children. It really is the blindness equivalent of taking photographs. So I put together a 21st birthday montage. It goes for about seven minutes of David's life so far, starting from when he was very little and working up chronologically. And it was fun and well-received. And what I will do is play that on the Mosin Explosion on Monday. The Mosin Explosion is the show that I do on Mushroom FM every weekday. You can hear it at 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. That's 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. U.K. Time. And if you don't know when that is in your time zone, you can go to the Mushroom FM schedule page at mushroomfm.com slash schedule. And assuming all's well, which it usually is, you'll be able to see that schedule in your own time zone. We can detect what time zone you're in and show you the schedule. But if by chance it doesn't work, there's a simple combo box there where you can choose the time zone that you are in and the schedule will be translated for you. The reason why I'm not playing the montage here is because there's some music in the background and I'll get pinged for doing that on the podcast platforms. So we'll do that on the Mosin Explosion. Looking forward to your company right throughout the week there, of course. I know that there are some sighted people who do a lot of audio recording of their children or of different things, but I think that blind people are more likely to do it because we don't have the option of just snapping a pic with the photos. I had a friend who's sadly died now, but he used to take a tape recorder around and record everything, this little tape recorder, and he'd be there recording, and we would know that he was recording. This was way back in the 80s and early 90s, and we would just accept that he was recording. He didn't make any secret of the fact, and we kind of thought it was odd at the time, but then we were grateful for it. I remember when Amanda and I celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary, He suddenly popped up and he said, I have a recording of your stag night. Do they call that a buck night, I think, in the United States? And he provided it to me. I have to say it was quite extraordinary. (laughs) So he was able to provide this. And I think we value these things as we get older. There were so many of us who did record things when we were kids and didn't keep the recording, perhaps because we didn't think it was important or we had a limited supply of cassettes. So we just recorded something over the top, didn't we? But those recordings that survive, they do become more precious as you get older. 
So we did talk about different tape machines that people owned some time ago, and that was a really interesting discussion. But it's also interesting to talk about what we use them for and how we might use them on average differently from sighted people, that we tend to use them more to keep a record of momentous events, events that are special to us in some way. Another really cool example of this is that while I don't have a recording of my absolutely first meeting with Bonnie, which she tells me was in 2006 at a convention we were both at, I do have that recording of the first Mosin Explosion show that we did together in 2012, where Bonnie had been a listener and she came to co-host the show when I was in Boston. And that is so cool. And quite often on the anniversary of that meeting, we get it out and we have a little listen to it. And maybe I would have just snapped a photo if I had the ability to really benefit from that. I do attend quite a few meetings with politicians and senior business leaders, and they're all into this now. They say at the end of the meeting, would it be okay if we take a quick photo? And they often put it up on social media. But to me, having a record of that conversation is just so much more precious. So you might like to comment on that. You can get in touch, of course by dropping me an email with an audio attachment, funnily enough, or you can write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com is the email address, and the listener line number's open for you as well. 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. It has been a busy week for technology this week. Global Accessibility Awareness Day occurred on Thursday. It occurs now on the third Thursday of May, And this is the 10th anniversary of Global Accessibility Awareness Day. It really has gained momentum. A lot of the big technology companies support it and do special things for it. And it has turned into a pretty busy day for me over the years, I have to say. I often get asked to speak to organizations, either giving online presentations or presentations in person. I went to give a presentation to a pretty significant organization on Global Accessibility Awareness Day this year. And Apple has announced a number of things in conjunction with Global Accessibility Awareness Day, so we'll go through those and keep you clued in. Apple has now launched SignTime. This is a service that will pair Apple Store and Apple Support customers with on-demand sign language interpreters. SignTime will allow customers to communicate with Apple Care and retail customer care inside their browsers using American Sign Language, British Sign Language, and French Sign Language. The service will also be available in person at retail stores without making arrangements ahead of time. For now, the service is limited to the United States, the United Kingdom, and France, but Apple says it'll roll out to more countries over time. Sign Time is available now. It launched on Global Accessibility Awareness Day, but Apple also, unusually really for Apple, took the time to announce some future things that will be coming down, presumably in iOS 15 and the Apple Watch equivalent, so that will be Watch OS version 8. Assistive Touch is coming to the Apple Watch. The feature uses hand clenches, pinch gestures, and hand shaking to navigate and select controls in watch apps. Assistive touch for the Apple Watch takes advantage of the device's gyroscope and accelerometer, along with the heart rate sensor and machine learning. Also coming later this year, the iPad is going to gain support for third-party eye-tracking devices to assist users in navigating the iPad's user interface. Apple also says that voiceover is being enhanced with new details about people, text, 
table data and other objects. It says the feature will offer more descriptive information for blind and low vision users than ever before. Users will also be able to add their own image descriptions to their photos using markup. For deaf and hard of hearing users, Apple is adding bi-directional hearing aid support. My understanding of this is that it's going to require either a hardware update, so in other words, new hearing aids, which can often be very expensive, or possibly some could be updatable in software. But by bi-directional hearing aid support, I believe what they're referring to is the idea that you can use the microphones in your hearing aids to create phone and FaceTime calls and perhaps do other things with the microphones. Sometimes these things work well and other times they don't. We had, I believe it was Anisio on the show, talking about the difficulty that people have with the Phonak hearing aids that he uses, which actually pair with Bluetooth and therefore have this bi-directional feature already. And he is saying that some people find him quite hard to hear when he is using that feature. So hopefully you will be able to turn it on and off. It could be very similar to people who use AirPods and the microphones on there for FaceTime and phone calls. And sometimes those people are really difficult to hear. So that will be something that hopefully Apple is cognizant of because we are talking about people with hearing impairments here. One thing I would really like to see now that Apple is doing a great job of using the microphone array on the iPhone to produce stereo and that app developers can hook into this feature is that they allow that to be done in live listen mode. You can have a play with this if you have AirPods. You can certainly use it if you have made for iPhone hearing aids. The idea with live listen mode is that your iPhone becomes a remote microphone and it can be all that's needed in certain meeting situations. There is a little bit of latency with it, certainly with the made-for-iPhone hearing aids that I am using at the moment, but you could put your iPhone in the middle of a table, and that may be all that's required for you to hear better in a meeting environment. The only trouble is that it's all mono. So if you're a blind person who's trying to face the person that's speaking, you have no idea, unless you've done some checking ahead of time before you enabled the live listen feature, where they are speaking from. Not everybody will want this all the time. It's much easier sometimes to hear something if it's coming through both ears exactly the same, a perfectly mono source. But some people would benefit from it. So the option to make live listen stereo would be a really big help. The company is also including support for audiograms, which can be used with headphone accommodations, To tune playback to a user's hearing, and I just wonder how far we are from Apple actually formally entering the hearing aid space, which could be really disruptive, possibly in a very good way. Background sounds like balanced, bright or dark noise and ocean, rain and stream sounds are being added as well. And this can help some people who have tinnitus. It can be just a nice way to relax as well. Apple also says that later this year they are introducing sound actions for switch control that uses mouth sounds in place of switches and buttons. That is a really cool concept. They also have customizable display and text size settings for colorblind users and new Memoji customizations to allow users to add oxygen tubes, cochlear implants and a soft helmet for headwear if you're building your own personalized Memoji. 
So it sounds like there is going to be a lot to play with in the iOS 15 betas, which will be available beginning for developers on the 7th of June. And that reminds me to remind you that we will, of course, have comprehensive coverage of the WWDC keynote right after it happens. We will stream that live on Clubhouse. We'll also make it available in the Mosin at Large podcast. Our guests on this one will be Judy Dixon, Michael Fair, and Heidi Taylor will be here to give you all the description of what went on at WWDC. So congratulations to Apple for all of those accessibility initiatives. It's also been a busy week for Apple with other technologies, where they have announced some pretty significant changes to Apple Music. I wonder why all of these impactful announcements are being dropped now. It suggests that there may be something quite big coming at WWDC, but I guess we don't have too long to wait. The first thing I would observe before we go into the nitty-gritty of what Apple has said is coming to Apple Music is that it is quite a brave play to make on their part, making all of these new features free when antitrust accusations are being hurled around at Apple. For example, Apple has announced that you will be able to listen to their music catalogue in lossless audio at no additional charge. Now, we will get to trying to de-geekify this in just a minute and what it actually means. But I want to start by talking about the brave play that they have made here, because there are several services out there that are offering a lossless audio tier at a premium. If you want to listen to lossless audio, you can go to services like Tidal, Deezer and Cobus. You can also go to Amazon. They have a high fidelity music service as well. And Spotify signaled some time ago that they are moving to a lossless audio service and that you will have to pay a premium for that. So what has Apple done? Apple has said, we're doing lossless audio as well, and you won't have to pay a cent extra. Lossless audio is just going to happen when you have an Apple Music subscription. Now, that makes Apple Music super attractive to audiophiles, but it must be causing headaches for the accountants in those music streaming companies whose real value add is this lossless music part that you have to pay a premium for. So what does it mean when Apple says that they are offering lossless streams? If you listen to MP3 files, or hopefully you've at least been able to upgrade to M4A files, which is a superior version of this sort of technology, The reason why those files are as small as they are is that when you encode them or when the streaming music service that you use encodes them, they are taking out little bits of the audio that they don't think the human ear will care about missing. How much is taken out depends on the bit rate of the file. The smaller the file, the more obvious it is that there has been audio taken out. Some musicians have been really grumpy about the advancement of these lossy compression formats. Neil Young, chief amongst them, he even got so annoyed about it that he started his own piece of hardware and music service, both of which did not do well. And I think this is the thing. Most people either don't have the equipment to notice or the ears to care, or they're just happy to have music sounding like it does. If you do have the right equipment and you are a critical listener, you will be able to hear a difference when you get your music served to you in a way that is lossless. This means that you are able to hear the music as it was recorded in the studio without any compromise. 
What you then get into is a more traditional debate about how that music should be recorded. Compact discs opted for 44 kilohertz, 16-bit audio, and even at the time, in the 1980s, that was a controversial decision. Many people felt that it should at least be 48 kilohertz that that decision to standardize on 44 kilohertz, 16-bit, was too limiting for the quality of music for the dynamic range. Now, studios are recording at a much better bitrate than CD quality. Yes, it's true, you can get much better than CD quality. Now, Apple Music is going to offer you the ability to hear this audio going all the way up to really high bitrates that you will need external hardware to be able to play for the very high bitrate versions of the material that Apple is going to serve you to benefit from it you will need a standalone digital analog converter that plugs into the lightning port of your iPhone. What we don't know about yet is whether external services or products that use Apple's music API are going to have access to these lossless versions of the audio. Sonos, for example, is key in my mind, although even Sonos won't be able to play the absolute maximum high-velocity versions of this music but some other players could. Sonos does work with Cobus at a pretty high bitrate, actually, as well as Deezer and Tidal in lossless audio, so I am hoping that Sonos will be able to support this. Apple Music is going to be using the ALAC, that's A-L-A-C, codec. It stands for Apple Lossless Audio Codec, to preserve, as they say, every single bit of the original audio file. And the good news, if you too have Sonos equipment, is that Sonos is capable of playing that codec already. So that does give me some hope. This means Apple Music subscribers will be able to hear the exact same thing that the artist created in the studio. Apple says that 20 million songs will be available in lossless audio at launch, with the full 75 million song catalogue available in lossless by the end of this year. Apple Music's standard lossless tier will start at CD quality, so that's 16-bit, 44 kilohertz, but it goes up to 24-bit, 48 kilohertz. Apple Music will also offer high-resolution lossless. That gets up to 24-bit at 192 kilohertz. That's where you're going to need that digital analog converter to benefit from that really high-res audio stuff. What interests me about this is the products that don't support it. If you've paid for the expensive AirPods Max, these are the -the over-the-ear headphones from Apple, and you connect it to the lightning port, so there's no Bluetooth involved, then at the moment at least, you can't play the Apple lossless for such an expensive product. That's strange to me, particularly given that Apple is usually quite methodical about their roadmap. So you would think that they would have known when they released AirPods Max that lossless was in the works. Curious. Similarly, with the HomePod Mini and in fact the older HomePod, that is not going to be able to play the lossless audio either. AirPods for now appear not to play them either, although there is a suggestion that because the new AirPods at least are Bluetooth 5 capable, that a software upgrade will make the lossless audio possible. So what's been confusing about the announcements this week is that there are two distinct parts of the announcement. 
One is this lossless audio that I've just been talking about, and I'm sure that things will become clearer over time in terms of what devices will really let that shine. But the one that most people are going to care about more and benefit from and be able to use are all the announcements that I would describe if I'm trying to capture them all as a way of going beyond stereo for music. Now, Apple's information has been a bit sparse, and so people have been trying to gather it together. The best explanation that I have seen of this so far was on Apple Insider, so I'll refer to that article as we try and unpack this for you. Dolby Atmos is something that we have talked about on the show before in the context of watching movies and purchasing the Sonos Arc, and then all the drama that we had getting the right TV to talk to the Sonos Arc while a screen reader was running. But if you haven't been following that, Dolby Atmos enables a 3D soundscape with directional audio. Dolby Atmos is an audio format for film and music creators, and the creators can use it to place audio in a 3D space during the mixing process. Previously, musicians would need to combine their music recordings from several tracks into two equally balanced channels used for a stereo track. Similarly, filmmakers had to assign certain sounds to specific speakers in a dynamic speaker setup, such as a 5.1 or 7.1 surround sound system. Now, creators are no longer limited by the number of speakers or how they are arranged. Artists can designate where a sound is coming from and its distance, and the Dolby Atmos system will determine which speaker to play it from. This creates a much more immersive space for audio and gives enthusiasts the chance to design more complex speaker systems. When listening to Dolby Atmos, a listener can hear directional audio from up to 128 channels that can be played to up to 34 separate speakers at once. Headphones that support Dolby Atmos use different mixing techniques to achieve the same effect with fewer speakers. Ultimately, the result is the same, a simulated 3D audio space that contains depth and direction. Rather than have all the instruments firing from the two channels, musicians can now separate them into several distinct channels. These instruments can move around the listener as the song plays as well. The effect is supposed to transform how music is experienced. Movies and video games were the first formats to take advantage of Dolby Atmos, but recently music is becoming more common in the format. The first experience I had of this, and it was really the thing that encouraged me to get the Sonos Arc and get this sorted, was the Abbey Road remix from 2019, where there is a Dolby Atmos version of that album, and it really is something very special. I've also heard other Dolby Atmos tracks from Tidal, and the way I've been listening to this is to use the Tidal app for tvOS, which unfortunately is not the best accessibility experience in the world, and then playing that through the Sonos Arc, which gives you the Atmos soundtrack. Now, obviously, a soundbar setup like the Sonos Arc is just a kind of glimpse into the world that Dolby Atmos makes possible. If you really want to go the whole hog, you would get a proper Dolby Atmos system with speakers strategically placed all over the place and get rid of a soundbar entirely. And you would certainly notice a big difference from just using a soundbar like the Arc. So it depends on how much money you want to throw at this, how keen you are about the audio. 
Apple Music promises thousands of Dolby Atmos tracks when it launches the new experience in June. So can you hear this? Well, you need equipment that supports Dolby Atmos directly. You won't be able to hear Dolby Atmos audio on older surround sound systems, even if those systems have multiple channels. New sound systems, TV sets, and computers often support the format. The iPhone, iPad, and Mac also include support for Dolby Atmos, though when connecting speakers or headphones, they must support the format as well. So if you play one of these Dolby Atmos tracks on the speakers of your iPhone or your iPad or your Mac, you will get the effect, although I don't know how well you'll really get the effect with speakers like that. The Mac might not be so bad, or the iPad for that matter. Dolby Atmos will automatically play on devices with the W1 or H1 chip. So that means that the Dolby Atmos tracks are going to play fine on the AirPods, the AirPods Pro, and the AirPods Max. And recent Beats by Drake headphones will have the support as well. Other headphones with Dolby Atmos will work but you're going to have to toggle it on. So I would encourage you to start looking as they are rolling this out in settings, music, and then audio. So then we have spatial audio. Spatial audio makes it sound as if audio is playing directly from the iPhone or the iPad. Apple introduced spatial audio, you will remember, in 2020 at WWDC, and we talked about this quite a bit in the recap that we did immediately after WWDC, and it was released for AirPods Pro and AirPods Max later that year in 2020. Spatial audio takes advantage of the gyroscopes and sensors in the listening device and headphones to simulate a 3D listening space that stays static as you move your head. Spatial audio doesn't need Dolby Atmos audio to work. It can work with 5.1 or 7.1 surround sound, but it does work best with well-mixed Dolby Atmos productions. Spatial audio adds some spatial awareness to the device you're listening to the audio on. Rather than a sound stage that is fixed to the location of your head, it is fixed to the location of your device. And We have had people commenting on this when they've been watching shows on Apple TV+, Plus, for instance, and saying how really cool it is. Usually when you play music or a movie, you hear sound from all around you. But if you turn your head, the front of the sound is still where your head is facing. When watching a movie or concert with spatial audio, the front of the sound is always where the device is. Essentially, you'll be able to turn your head towards a sound in 3D space and hear it as if it is in front of you. There has been a bit of confusion about what device is supporting what feature. There was some suggestion that HomePods are going to support spatial audio, and I'm not quite clear about how that would be because it really is specific to where your head is. And to the best of my knowledge, Apple HomePod doesn't have that feature. But it sounds like even though there's no lossless on HomePod, at least right now, you will have Dolby Atmos And so you should hear some real improvement. Even if you don't get the spatial audio, you will get those tracks that are encoded in Dolby Atmos. So I'm looking forward to this rolling out, to getting your feedback on what you are enjoying. And as things become clearer about devices that are capable of playing the Apple lossless audio in its different carnations, spatial audio and Dolby Atmos, we will bring it to you here. 
pretty exciting week. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Hi, Jonathan Wright. Ali, hope you're well. I thought I'd chime in with my thoughts on screen reader comparisons. Personally, I think Jaws is the unequivocal winner. Voiceover and narrator don't even come close. It's like comparing salmon with haddock. I think one of NVDA's greatest shortcomings, which is largely glossed over, is that it doesn't come packaged with anywhere near the amount of audio training that JAWS provides. The folks at Freedom Scientific have done a great job over the years of preparing easy-to-follow DAISY tutorials, which show you how to use some of the most obscure but amazingly useful JAWS features. NVDA may well be excellent, but you won't know it since the support and training is negligible or, at the very least, hard to obtain. Also, most people I've spoken to only use NVDA because they can't afford JAWS or because they are awaiting funding and would switch over in a heartbeat if they could. On a related note, what is your experience with using JAWS with a touchscreen? I am thinking of splashing out on the latest and greatest model of the Microsoft Surface Pro. How would you compare JAWS support for touchscreens with voiceover on, say, an iPad? Can you operate a touchscreen tablet with JAWS successfully and efficiently without resorting to an external keyboard? This brings me on to mobile phone accessibility. You touched on Android a couple of weeks ago on the podcast and expressed the view that it is close to voiceover at least as long as there is no Braille involvement, yes, emphatically with a lowercase b. Oh dear. Do you know of a good training resource for TalkBack which provides audio demos for beginners? Do you think an iPhone user who doesn't use a Braille display with their iPhone could buy a mobile phone running Android and use it without experiencing nostalgic longings for the iPhone? Thanks, Ellie. Regarding your first point, I am not an NVDA user, but a few years ago when I was involved in Mosin Consulting, I thought it was relevant for me to become familiar with what NVDA was offering. And at that stage, they had some really good training material, but you had to purchase it. They had one module on Word, I think, and another one on Office. And I think they also had one on General Windows. And I must say, That material was exceptionally good. I thought it was really well written. It was well explained. Whoever wrote it clearly can articulate concepts in a way that's easy to understand. So if that training is being kept up to date and you purchase that, I think it is a very good resource to have if you choose to use NVDA. And it's of really good quality, in my opinion. On your second point, I have never really got on well with touch on Windows. And I'm not sure whether it's me or the implementation. It could be that because I've used Windows for so long with touch and that I am a real keyboard ninja and I know pretty much every Windows keyboard shortcut there is to know, 
that I just find myself reaching for the keyboard before I have given touch a fair chance. But I would be really interested to find out if there are people who are regularly using touch on Windows successfully and whether they do think that it's as good as voiceover on the iPhone or the iPad. In my experience, it's not. But again, it could just be my preferences showing through because of how long I've used it with a keyboard. So that's a great discussion point. And if there are people using touch a lot on tablets or one of those convertibles where you can turn a laptop into a tablet, I would like to know how you're getting on with it. Do you think it is equal? Can you get work done with touch and windows? Not just with JAWS, actually, but any Windows screen reader. How is that working out for you? Regarding Android, it's been a while since I've played. I've heard a few demos of the new TalkBack, and it sounds much better now. But I haven't gotten around to having a play with a new Android device for a while now. I do keep intending to, but life and work get in the way. So I can't really comment authoritatively on that. But I'd like to do that soon. Hello, Jonathan. It's uh, Saddam from Melbourne. I think absolutely JAWS is still the gold standard. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. The first one being employment. I'm lucky enough to work as a quality assurance engineer on a contract basis. And in fact, in the middle of a big project with one of my clients, there is no way that I could do the job that I do every day and maximize my client's return on investment and their time in my skill set without being able to move at lightning speed from project to project, whether it's using Microsoft Teams with Brian Hartgen's wonderful scripts, whether it's remote training over Zoom and attending meetings over Zoom. We use Microsoft Word and track changes quite heavily, so I'm able to quickly review content and update content and respond to comments with Word. Google Docs, I spend a lot of time in, and that works very well with JAWS. Microsoft Outlook is my daily email client, and I use its calendaring feature to remind me of where I need to be on the desktop. And there are just so many other facets of my life where this screen reader really makes a difference. It literally puts money in my pocket and bread on my table. And I would not be half as successful as I am without this screen reader. Don't get me wrong, I think the free solutions like Voice are built into the Mac and the other screen reader for Windows have their place. But for good quality access, the Mac cannot hold a candle to JAWS. And as you alluded in your podcast, lots of blind people or those who are employed work in a CSR or customer service representative role and being able to see who's calling and bringing up notes about your customer and building a rapport with your customer can really boost your KPI targets and put you on the fast track for promotion possibly or a larger pay packet and boost your productivity. I'm also on the board of the Accessibility Working Group or AWG at my university and I attend meetings and I rely on JAWS to keep me on track with Word 
reading minutes using Microsoft Word. So I think it's very important that we push for solutions that empower us to drastically undercut this 75% or 80%, whatever the figure is these days, of the unemployment rate amongst our community. And whilst I love the Mac for entertainment, when you need to get down and push comes to shove and you need to work to the crunch, whether it's sending an important paper for university or indeed meeting a, a deadline, moving from project to project. Jaws is superb. Thanks for your thoughts, Adam. And of course, we welcome the perspective of those who are working well with the Mac in their daily lives. Next week, we are going to be speaking with Janet Ingber, who has updated her book on using the Mac. If you just want to get started with the Mac, they are very attractive devices with the M1 processor now in place. Then Janet will talk about that. And we're doing something a little bit different this time. We are going to be recording that interview in Clubhouse. That is scheduled to take place on Wednesday, the 26th of May at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And I will set up an event in the Mushroom FM Club in Clubhouse. So if you don't follow the Mushroom FM Club yet, please do that because then you will get a notification about this event with Janet Ingber. I will do the interview, but then we'll open it up. And if you have any questions about the book or the Mac, then Janet will be able to answer those for you. And then we'll play that on next week's Mosin at Large. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Mrs. C from Canada is writing in and says, Hello, Jonathan. I was very surprised and sorry to hear the news about the snowman. It is very difficult to have something amiss with your hearing, and especially so if you already have a vision problem. However, it is wonderful that there are such surgeries as the cochlear implant. I too have no sight and have hearing loss and do not know how severe my problem will become. It can obviously become isolating, cutting one off from friends, family, music and books, plus other things. It impinges on mobility capabilities, causing loss of some independence. While attending a dog guide school, I became friends with a lady from Alaska who has Usher syndrome. Usher syndrome is a rare genetic disorder causing both hearing and vision loss. People with Usher syndrome have retinitis pigmentosa, which affects the peripheral vision, their night vision, and their color vision. A few years ago, my friend's sight diminished from being able to walk down the aisle of a grocery store and read labels on cans to now where she can barely see it all just like looking through a narrow straw. Her hearing also had diminished considerably. She decided, on the advice of her doctor, to apply for a cochlear implant. She has now had the implant for over eight years. I asked her if I could interview her and share her experience with you, your listeners, and the snowman. She readily agreed, hoping her story will encourage and help others. When I heard your program, I wrote down the questions you asked and use them for the basis of the following interview. Interview. When you decided to look into getting an implant, what was the process you went through like? It was necessary for me to fly from Alaska to Seattle to be assessed. I was there all day, and part of the assessment was very similar to an assessment for a hearing aid. 
I was told I qualified for the implant and I should come back in two months to have the surgery. I was supposed to have an escort to accompany me, but they couldn't get one until the next day after the surgery. I flew back to Seattle, had the surgery, and stayed overnight in the hospital. My dog guide was with me, with no one to look after her, but everyone was very kind, and the surgeon took her home with him overnight. The next day the escort came, and I went to the hotel with her, where we stayed for about five days. She saw that I got my pain pills every four hours. Toward the end of the week, after the surgery, I had my stitches out and was then able to fly home. I had to go home for ten days to heal before returning for my processor. While this was going on, all hearing was gone from my left ear. This was a difficult time for me. Now I could only hear out of the right ear, with the use of a hearing aid. Prior to the surgery, I heard sounds and speech with the left ear, but could not make out what they were saying, even with a hearing aid. When I got the processor, I was able to hear, and it was wonderful, but it was not like I could hear before. There were adjustments to be made and programming to be done. I had to travel back and forth from Alaska to Seattle a number of times. At first, things were somewhat distorted, and when we went from the hotel to the hospital when it was raining, wow, was that ever loud. It took about six months to get everything programmed right. When tested after six months, the audiologist was so surprised and thrilled with my progress, as was I. She said it takes a year or more to adjust, but she felt I had made remarkable progress. It takes patience and hard work, but one shouldn't get discouraged because it is well worth it in the long run. They have programs that they give you to take home to practice with, but I can't speak to that because I didn't need them. I love reading, and after losing so much sight, I began reading talking books, and I think this made all the difference and why I progressed so quickly. I practiced listening to books with various readers, and I am an avid news listener. Do you feel like you are better off having made the decision to get a cochlear implant? Most definitely. I hear very well out of that ear now. How was music for you? Was it distorted? No, I just had to put it up as loud as I needed it, hoping it didn't bother the neighbours. No complaints, so I guess it didn't. What is your day-to-day socialisation like, in terms of before and after? I am not very social, but am just the same after the implant as before. I had hearing aids before, as I said. The doctor noticed the hearing had gone way down in the left ear, and suggested the implant. That was a number of years ago, and now I have pretty good hearing in that ear. Like I said, I could always hear something with that ear, noise and people talking, but could not make it out. Now I can hear fine with it, but the other ear has gone the same way. When the doctor recently suggested I go for an implant for the other ear, I said no, because of my age, and I just couldn't see myself flying back and forth to Seattle again and having surgery and living in a hotel for a number of days. Perhaps if I were younger, I would have considered it, but not now. Since having her implant, she has flown independently on several occasions from Alaska to Iowa to visit and to Michigan for a new dog guide. 
My friend is a very courageous lady who moved to Alaska without knowing anyone, without friends or relatives there. She just loves it. The beauty of the island she lives on, the flora and fauna, all have captured her imagination, and she can't wait to have a visit from her grandson and his parents so she can show them around. Just adding a friend's perspective, it is much easier for her to hear over FaceTime with me than it is to chat on the phone. We spend an hour every Saturday and Wednesday nights chit-chatting, and as she says, it is just like sitting in your living room visiting. My friend still lives on her own and goes for long walks most days with her dog guide, usually five or six miles a day. Not bad for an octogenarian. I feel sure that my friend would have gone for the second implant if she were younger. She's a very gutsy lady. We realize that everyone's situation can be different. We hope that this may serve to encourage anyone thinking of applying for an implant or even thinking of moving to Alaska. As she says, I wish to share with anyone thinking of having it done to remember you have to have patience, perseverance, and don't give up. The end result is well worth it. Thank you so much. That is a great email. I appreciate the time you took to put it together and all of the information that was shared. Ah, Mr. Mosen. So this is a um, a dual-purpose recording, if you will. I'm testing uh, an app called Just Press Record. I'm sure some people have heard of it. You no doubt have heard of it yourself. Uh, the um, advantage is that it records in stereo uh, using the microphone, the um, iPhone's internal microphone array. So I wanted to uh, offer a word of caution. So a couple of weeks ago, I was asked by a good friend of mine to update uh, her laptop, which is um, a Dell. Uh, the model is um, not particularly important here, but uh, suffice it to say that uh, it's a 2000, it was a 2019 laptop. It was an i7 with like 16 gigs of RAM and quite a powerhouse. Now, I've been, like yourself, doing this for a very, very long time, and usually things go fairly smooth sailing. Uh, this did not. <laughs> so the first thing that happened was um, she was running uh, JAWS 19, which was um, not ideal. So the first thing I did was update that. And uh, I ran the Dell update utility, which in some instances is accessible, or rather, let's just say it was accessible until it was updated. Then it became somewhat less so. You can uh, get through it, you know, with a little bit of frustration. But um, it showed that there was a bunch of updates that were necessary to um, do to this machine, one of which was the um, system firmware. <laughs> so it offered the opportunity for an automated process. Sometimes I don't like to do that. I like to kind of just do updates one at a time, uh, just in the possibility that an update breaks and I can go backwards a step. You know, sometimes what happens, as you know, is that when they all get done, you know, in a rollout, you don't know which one uh, is the one that went wrong. So we, I'm going through this 
and the it flashed the uh, new firmware and then it all went quiet it went to reboot and i'm thinking oh dear uh i don't hear anything and of course you know all these uh new machines with s uh, std drives um there's nothing to hear when you put your ear to them so you know when i'm working on them at home i have a inductive pickup where i can sit near somewhere that you know picks up the crackle or the noise of the uh you know the data going on but here i didn't have that so i decided to bring the machine home uh, from my friend's place and work on it uh, here where i had uh, a little bit more you know somewhat of a better toolkit to do it so I couldn't get any speech out of it at all, so I decided to employ uh, good old seeing AI. <laughs> so I had that aimed at the screen, and it spoke of a message. Uh, the first thing it wanted was the BitLocker password. Now, normally, when BitLocker is enabled, the automated process of doing that stores the key in your Microsoft account. But this person did not enable BitLocker, nor could she remember her password to get into uh, the Microsoft account. Well, she could remember it, but uh, one of her um, younger offspring had changed the password uh, a number of times to the point where... Uh, when she tried to get in, and when I tried to get in, it, told, it said that this account was locked and couldn't be recovered. So as it turns out, what I have learned is that the later model machines have the BitLocker uh, file encryption turned on by default, and they don't tell you this. There is a very, very quick message that flashes when the Dell update utility is going through its process saying that this program needs to suspend the BitLocker uh, process until this update is complete and then it will be automatically re-enabled. So I did a lot of research and asked a lot of questions around the place and uh, it turns out that, um, well, the BitLocker, you know, encryption a process is doing exactly what it was designed to do, and that is to prevent you from getting in. But um, the process of trying to recover the Microsoft account, it's probably the worst and most frustrating process uh, that I've ever been through. Like, you know, I've recovered Apple uh, IDs with much less hassle. Part of the process is you have to prove that you're a human, and you have to, the, the Microsoft audio capture is terrible. It is, you know, absolutely unacceptable. And there's a form, an online form that one has to fill in to basically uh, validate your credentials. And, you know, it's a machine that essentially, um, you know, if you don't get uh, so many points, um, it, it's not convinced that you are who you say you are. Some of the questions it was asking, for example, was give us 10 emails, uh, the subject, the precise subject titles of the last 10 emails that you've sent on this account. Well, this person doesn't send from the Microsoft account. She uses a different account. 
I tried three or four times and we put our heads together and we had the information almost all correct so far as um, it was entered originally. But uh, we couldn't convince the Microsoft account machine that uh, she was the person that created the account. So the account is hosed. So the only solution that I had open to me was to reformat the hard drive uh, and start all over again and put everything back uh, as much as I could recover uh, and create a new Microsoft uh, account uh, because the Microsoft ego, eco system, pardon me, is um, quite uh, demanding. There used to be a way where you could say, no, I don't want to create a Microsoft account, I'll do it later. But it won't even let you do that anymore. It just keeps cycling back around to sign in or create an account. And if you're already connected to a couple of ecosystems already, I mean, you know, I've been, you know, part of the Apple ecosystem, both as a user and a developer. And I don't want to, you know, have Microsoft as well. I'd, I'd like to be able to tie it all into one. But anyway, um, long story short, I say this to anyone with these, uh, uh particularly up, updating the, um, the Dell, uh, laptops. Um, I say Dell. It's possible that, uh, this situation could arise on other machines, but, uh, this was a, uh, you know, specific Dell, um, update package, uh, that did it. I recommend if you don't have a key, go into settings and turn off Microsoft BitLocker. Or there are a couple of options. You can put the, you can copy the key onto a USB drive as a compiled um, recovery um, script. And so what will happen is if it needs the key, you can just put the USB uh, drive into the um, laptop at boot up where it goes into a command prompt and it will run a little batch file that will insert the key into the right place or, you know, make a note of it. It's a 48 digit key that is required. The other thing, the reason that I didn't get any audio was surprisingly enough, the Realtek audio chip on that 2019 vintage motherboard didn't have a driver that runs in safe mode. So I had to actually plug a really cheap uh, USB uh, sound card, a $3 job into the machine and plug uh, headphones or, you know, some output source into that before I could get narrator to work in, you know, to do the Windows installation. Holy soup! Holy soup! I know that's very strong language, but what an experience. That is Haroon with that. Thank you so much for chronicling that for us. The easy part first. Yes, we have talked about Just Press Record quite a few times on this show over the years. And we talked about the fact that in iOS 14, Apple made some API changes that now allow audio app developers to offer stereo if they want using the built-in microphone array. There are a number of apps that do this. I think Ferrite was the first one that I had that did it, but now several do. I like Just Press Record a lot. I have it on my Apple Watch, and actually it occupies one of the complications on my watch face, just in case I ever get into a situation where I need to record something quickly. And it doesn't do a bad job recording on the Apple Watch. 
And as we heard from Haroon's recording there, it does a nice job on the iPhone and it's accessible. So what's not to like? Your comment about the induction coil that you use to get clues about whether things are powered on and what they're doing or not gladdens my heart because, as I've said on a few demonstrations, this is one advantage of having a hearing impairment is that my hearing aids have a telecoil. And when I want to find out if a computer is on or not, I listen to it via the telecoil And I've become quite used to interpreting the noises over the years. I can tell when a computer's booting up. I can tell when it's idle. It's really cool, especially in this era of solid-state drives. It's cool, baby. Yes, it is. It's very cool. And I would encourage people to get into this. If you can get an induction coupler like that so you can put it against different devices, it's amazing the information it can convey and how you can learn to interpret it. And this makes me quite useful to Bonnie, I'm pleased to say, because every so often she gets her computer in a state where she can't rescue it. She doesn't know whether it's on, whether it's off, why there's no audio, and I can usually sort it out because of that feature. Regarding the Dell situation, this technology works well until it doesn't. And it sounds like there were several factors that could have played a part in this really challenging situation. I'm running the Dell XPS 15 9500. This is the late 2020 edition. And I have found the support assistant quite good. When you go into the support assistant, the trick seems to be to press the tab key a few times. And then you get into a virtual cursor environment with JAWS. And from there, I am able to check for updates, do its hardware diagnostics and the various things that you can do in the Dell Support Assistant. Now, I have gone through a firmware update process, I believe twice now, since I've had the Dell XPS 15, and I've not had any problem with it. I can say it does take a very long time. And when you go through that process and you want to know how it's going, I don't believe Narrator is available during the firmware update process because it's going right into the BIOS level. So when I update, I use either Ira, if I'm really anxious about it, or I use Seeing AI, and that often gives me very good information as well as the progress unfolds. I've had really good results, actually, with the quality of this screen in the XPS 15 and Seeing AI. The trick is to be patient and let it do its thing. And of course, I have no way of knowing whether that might have helped with the situation or not if it had been allowed to go a bit longer before it was switched off and taken home but i have just gone into the settings on my xps 15 to verify whether bitlocker is on or not and it is on and i have had these updates complete successfully with bitlocker on but then i am also signed in to my microsoft account it's a pretty generic kind of installation but this is the thing When they go wrong, they can go horribly wrong. And that is frustrating. And then, of course, you have accessibility challenges in the mix. It's enough to make you go bald. So well done, Haroon, for persisting with it. I agree with you. On a couple of occasions, I have had to do things relating to Microsoft accounts, and they are incredibly fastidious, I think is the word that I would use to describe it. It can be quite difficult. But... I'm glad you found a solution at least to get the machine up and running in the end.
and perhaps other people can comment on their update experiences with Dell and other machines where BitLocker is enabled. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. More on daylight saving. What a fun subject this is. Floor Lynch writes, if interested... You can find a lot of material on the change from GMT to Daylight Savings Time on Wikipedia. And there is also mention of the experiment that ran between 1968 and 1971, where the UK and Ireland joined CET, Central European Time, and then abandoned it. On the computer clocks, Lisbon is listed alongside Dublin, Edinburgh and London for our region of GMT. This email is from Imke, who says, Hello, Jonathan, thank you for continuing to produce the Mosin at Large podcast on your own time. I find it extremely useful and interesting to listen to and listen to much or all of it most weeks. Today, I have three questions and thoughts. One, what is your verdict on the official release of iOS 14.5 with respect to the Braille with a lowercase b? problems that were introduced in iOS 14.4. I understand that the Bluetooth connection issues that affected some displays have already been fixed in 14.4.1, but have all of the focus issues that were also discussed in previous episodes of your podcast been addressed? I'll answer this one right away because it's easy. Yes, they're all fixed. As far as I'm concerned, my general feeling about iOS 14.5 is ship it, Lock it in. Install it. I like this release. Two, the email continues. Do you or the other listeners have any suggestion for how I can reassign NVDA shortcut keys to key combinations that do not involve the caps lock or insert keys? I have become a devoted user of NVDA and use it together with Dragon Naturally Speaking to reduce the chance of re-aggravating repetitive stress injury symptoms in my wrists and arms. I have been using an open source program called Dictation Bridge, which allows me to use voice commands for screen reader commands. With the advent of NVDA 2020.3, this has stopped working, and the developer team does not seem to have enough developers to fully diagnose and resolve the problem. If I could just figure out how to reassign some of the NVDA shortcuts to key combinations that use the Control, Alt, and Shift keys instead of Caps Lock and Insert, I could easily create my own Dragon commands for issuing them. Any suggestions? Also, I know that there is a program, JSay, that does something similar with JAWS. Are there any users out there who can tell me how well that is working for them? I'll stop and answer this one. I'm not an NVDA user, so I can't answer your question relating to that. But I can say that JSay is regularly updated. It is supported by Hartgen Consultancy. It's been around a long time and keeps going. And depending on what it is that you need, you may be able to get away with just using JDictate, which gives you dictation functions. 
at a very reasonable price. If you do need to do the full voice control thing, though, and perform all JAWS functions with your voice, then yes, JSA is the one to get. And you can find out more information by going to hartgen.org, H-A-R-T-G-E-N.org. Contact Brian. I'm sure he would be happy to help you. You'll get a product that is extremely well supported. Three, regarding wheelchairs at airports, I have used all of the non-confrontational techniques as well, and I too have insisted not to use one. The first time was at a jetway when getting off a plane in San Francisco. The last part of the conversation went something like this. Assistant, you have to sit in the chair. I, I don't have to. Assistant, but would you please? I, I'd rather not. Assistant, okay. I ended up not riding in the chair, and the assistant became very friendly. Thanks, Imke. It is good when things can work out like that. Hi, Jonathan. It's Maria in Albany, New York. So many great uh, topics lately. I've been catching up on some shows. <laughs> uh, I love that you did a meditation episode. I practice a uh, primordial sound mantra meditation, and I've definitely found a lot of those similar benefits that you've mentioned. And so um, it was, I thought it was great that you uh, covered your story with it and sample meditation. And, and I never thought of the concept of a blind culture prior to your coverage, um, but I do see your point after kind of thinking about it. So um, interesting uh, perspectives. And also on the blind pride, I never thought of it as being, you know, proud. I was waiting to kind of comment until I heard what you, um, you know, how, how you defined it because I didn't quite understand either. And, um, but, you know, after hearing your comment, I can definitely relate to, you know, a lot of what you're saying. Um, I've never been ashamed of being blind. When people ask me how I feel about it, I, you know, definitely, um, speak of it as something that I hugely appreciate the unique perspectives and, you know, the resourcefulness and the life journey that it's allowed me to have. I certainly love being able to travel with my lacy with my guide dog uh, with me everywhere so um that's great so um yeah I I guess that is considered pride I I really never looked at it that way so um yeah some some interesting new perspectives to think about um in terms of vaccines I got my Pfizer doses on the 17th of March and the 7th of April and on um the 17th of March I became at that point um there wasn't just a, ma- a a block, a blanket uh, eligibility of 16 and over anyone can get like there is uh, in New York State now. And um, now they allow for walk-in appointments, but they didn't at the time. But on the 17th of March, I became eligible um, as a state government employee. So that uh, category opened up that day. And it just so happened that my parents were also going, um, they were going for their second doses that day at the mass vaccination site that was set up. And it's literally the vaccination site that's closest to me. So I kind of knew that my chances of, you know, getting booked at that particular site at that on that particular day, you know, and booking it the day of like in the morning for some appointment, you know, six hours later was kind of slim to none. But I so I figured like, I'll just go along with them and see what happens. You know, like I said, they weren't doing the walk in appointments. And I figured well, what's the worst that could happen is that they can say no. Um, But they allowed me. So that was really great. They accepted me. And then, you know, the second appointment is just automatically scheduled after you do your first. Um, 
And I only had a bit of arm soreness for a couple of days after both doses. Oh, and I'm, I'm so glad I've gotten them, um, that I've gotten it. I'm going to uh, plan, I'm planning to travel for a couple of weeks to Croatia over the summer to see my family there. I haven't been in five years. And that's something I never would have considered at all without being vaccinated. Um, we have very interesting, um, we have something called the Excelsior Pass in New York State. It's a voluntary thing. And it's kind of analogous to a boarding pass. Um, they have a, a system on their end that um, the vaccination providers upload the data of who's been vaccinated and the testing sites upload who's gotten recent negative COVID tests and such. And um, so you can, you know, you go into the system and you get a pass and you can either print it or show it on your phone. And then whoever is requesting proof, the business or what have you, um, they have a corresponding app and they scan the QR code that's part of your pass. And that's so you, you know, show you have proof. But, you know, of course, it's voluntary. And thankfully, you can also use your paper vaccination card because I still, even after all this time, am not in the database. I cannot get a pass. So I don't know what's up with that. Maybe because it's a vaccination site that there's a lot of data to upload, I imagine. And this is the largest mass vaccination site in the Albany area. So I, I know they have a lot. Um, but, you know, my brother, for instance, he got his vaccines after me at a small pharmacy in New York City. So I'm guessing they had less data um, and he has his pass. So um, we'll see what happens if I ever am able to get one. Luckily, as I said, I can show the, the paper card as proof um, as well. So that will be good if, if it never happens. <laughs> I'll still be okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I just found that interesting that it's very slow to, to update. Um, in terms of the wheelchair, uh, uh, acceptance in airports. I've only had it happen to me once that it was, um, offered. I, I traveled, I guess, pretty infrequently, but, um, I, you know, explained, I, I'm definitely not going to sit in one as a guide dog user. You know, I'd be concerned about like Lacey feeling she needed to run after it or it accidentally, you know, uh, sliding the wheels, sliding over her paws or what have you. So there's no way I'm going to sit in it. And, um, luckily the person did, you know, when I explained why I was refusing that I didn't need it, they, they allowed me to walk. Um, I think, you know, if they did insist, I think it would do what you did, uh, with, uh, putting the bag in there or, you know, using Ira. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Maybe the fact that I'm a guide dog user is kind of dis, has been dissuading the, the airport workers from insisting that I need to use the chair. I don't know. Or maybe I've just gotten lucky. Um, I did get my four pack of air tags on Friday. Uh, what's very interesting, I ordered two of the accessories from Belkin, their secure holder with strap, which is like their loop and then their keychain one. Those are going to take like a month to arrive. Can you believe? But uh, I got the air tags themselves yesterday, and I have these four in pockets of various bags, so I don't need the accessories right now. Um, but so I might be getting more of these because I can think of more places to um, have them. And I've been quite impressed with them. Um, similar to your demo, I really you know the simple setup, and I like that the sounds are pretty pleasant. They're not some like jarring, frightfully loud beep. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of uh, like you, I was I'm absolutely you know sold and on that precision finding feature. I think that's the most impressive. Um, for me, I had a similar experience when I tried it with a um, an air tag in my luggage bag, which is in a different room of my apartment. Um, for me, it started telling me um, when I was like you know it said the weak signal, and then I shifted it around and I think it started telling me when I was about like 28 or something feet away it started telling me directions um you know obviously distance decreased as I moved toward it and like you know I purposely moved in the opposite direction and it did say that I you know it was behind me and such um told me you know move to the right left when necessary etc and what I found um interesting it the um 
you know, what it was aiming at. I, I figured like, oh, I touched my, uh, my bag and, you know, it was going to tell me it was here, but, um, it was very, you know, precise, precise to the actual air tag itself that it, um, it literally said here right when my phone was above the air tag. So I found that really impressive. And I found that interesting. At one point it said that more light was required. Um, it was in my bag is in my, uh, walk-in closet and there is a separate light to that closet which I hadn't turned on but there was light coming in from the other you know from the main room so um I guess that makes sense that the light was needed but in the end it actually wasn't because it, it did find the tag um without requiring it but I thought that was um you know interesting that it was telling me about that so I'm quite happy with them and um I finally had a question for everyone at Mosin at Large Land if uh anyone out there knows or has an experience with the fire tablets i was kind of toying with the recent i think it was was it last week time's blurring but anyway recently uh, amazon um announced their new lineup of the fire hd 10 and the 10 plus um and the 10 plus you know it seemed like it had four gigs of ram and such and it you know it seemed like as you know an inexpensive thing that you it was it was pre- they were pretty decent specs um i think the processor's like an octa-core to um ghz or something like that um but anyway i kind of thought of it as like an inexpensive and portable way to read I really love the Ivona voices and it would be a way to be able to read um Kindle content portably with those uh voices um and you know with audible things it wouldn't hurt as well I guess if you know I didn't want to turn on do not disturb on my phone and such um to just read without being uh interrupted by notifications and such um but so yeah so I was wondering um if anyone out there has any experience with them and you know how do you like them are they like are they worth it you know for the price are they like are they laggy (laughs) are they pretty are they pretty responsive um my my kindle experiences are with um, ios and windows which i both like and um the screen reader you know governs the experience there but i read when i was reading this amazon help topic on reading the kindle content with voice view which is the screen reader on the fire tablets and i was talking about like two different it was saying something about a continuous reading feature which seemed like separate from voice view and then it seemed to imply that the voice view reading was like a non-continuous thing i guess i guess that means it wouldn't turn the pages i i was a little confused um so you know like is it is it clunky do you have like two different text-to-speech settings that you have to adjust and um I thought I read something about the, an angular gesture, but I thought that there were alternatives to these, which was a, you know, big consideration point for me because I'm terrible at those angle gestures when I've tried them in the past, the, the, um, Android ones. So, um, you know, do you have to u- use those? And, um, obviously I, as a Braille user, a proud Braille user with a capital B, um, I, uh, have a focus Braille display. So I'm curious, has, if anyone's used it with one of those, does it work well for, you know, reading and navigating? Can you, are there, you know, pretty good commands for, for doing that? Um, I did, uh, see on the Amazon uh, Braille page, it was not one of the ones listed, but I could have sworn I read somewhere. And of course, I have no idea where now, but I read, I think I read somewhere that someone did get a focus to work. So I don't know if that was an error or if Amazon hasn't updated their help pages or what have you. So I'd definitely be curious um, to know anyone's experience. Thank you for the update, Maria. I too would be interested in people's experience with the Amazon Kindle as it is at the moment. I've got an old Kindle Fire tablet, and I'm not sure if you can still update it or anything like that. I kind of didn't like the angular gestures either. I'm not sure if they're still a thing or not. So if you've been using the Amazon Kindle tablets lately with Voice View, how is it all working out? Is it a good experience? Would you recommend it? Let us know. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com is my email address. You can call the listener line as well 
on 86460 Mosin, 86460-6736. Hi, Jonathan. Mike May here, enjoying your podcast as always. And I wanted to comment on the video camera theme. On the Ring Doorbell, I've always been amazed at how bad the audio is. And particularly because sometimes there are situations with a Ring Doorbell where the audio is better. So if you have an Echo Show and you tell it to show the front door, you get video streaming, but you also get audio and you can hear things outside pretty effectively, the birds and everything. And if somebody comes up to the door, they sound pretty good. So it's curious that Alexa audio and that Ring audio don't seem to be equal in their quality. It's certainly an area where they need a huge improvement. And if you're in a noisy environment at all listening to that distorted audio, it's really hard to effectively use it. I have found it to be really effective in being out of town and able to talk to somebody at that door. I actually helped somebody once who had a car that was stuck out on the street and they needed to call AAA for assistance and the keys were locked in the car and I was able to do that for them remotely from a couple thousand miles away. The thing that's really unique to the Nest camera is that it can do some face recognition. Now you have to teach the names of the faces to the system. So the way that it would work is the first time somebody would be seen on camera, you would save that. Once that person is named, the next time they come in view of the camera, it'll identify Jonathan is at your door. I find this really useful in situations like wanting to know, is it UPS driver? Is it the neighbor? Any known person you'd like to hear about. And then if it's unknown, that would be really valuable for a blind person as well. So think of it as our peephole through the door. I asked Ring about this, and they said that for privacy reasons, they didn't want to do it, which is a pretty pat answer and a good excuse. But they didn't seem to have any intention of adding that feature even though Nest has it and it seems to work fine. Mika and I used this at Envision a couple of years back, and we set up a camera on the reception desk on our fifth floor that didn't have anybody working that reception desk. And we wanted to know a guest came in or if it was a staff member. And so we identified the staff members in the Nest camera software in the, in the app. And if they came through, it would be a known person, it'd be announced in our office and we wouldn't pay attention to it. But if it was unknown, then one of us could pop up and go out to the elevator reception desk area and see who it was and greet them. That really allowed us not to have a receptionist who's just sitting there primarily for that purpose. And I thought it was a really useful tool for blind people. But in that situation, it would be useful for sighted people as well. It's been quite a bit of chat on the podcast in the last few weeks about discrimination. And I want to chime in with an example I had just a couple of months ago, which really struck to me just how much this thing still exists, even in this day and age with all this enlightenment. In the UK at the moment, there's this plan in place to try and make our homes more green. And one thing is to get better insulation in our houses, be that in the walls or the attic or all that good, sort of good stuff. And so I'd be looking to up my level of insulation in my attic. And I'd found a company who were going to come round and give me a quote. Now, I'd organised this and everything seemed to be in place okay. 
However, the chappy managed to turn up an hour and a half late, which isn't a problem in itself, in so much as we're not going anywhere in this day and age. And they did let me know that the chap would be late. But when he eventually turns up, he says, oh yeah, yeah, sorry I'm late. I had to deal with a blind lady and uh, had to wait for her son to come home. I thought, oh, well, very good. Uh, yeah, well, that's so be it. <laughs> so we then came into my living room, all mashed up, etc, etc, all that good stuff. And he sat down and goes, is that a gig dog? And I went, yep. <laughs> Shut off, fair enough. And then he said, how, how long have you, you lived here? And I said, oh, I've been here over 25 years and I moved up here when I get married. And then he lost his seal immediately by his, his full of comment, nothing to do with being blind or anything like that. He just said, oh, at least she left you with the house. <laughs> Meaning my wife. And I said, well, actually, no, she died three years ago. Anyway, so he then trotted off up the stairs to the attic to do his examination of my loft space in order to give me the recommendation and how much it was going to cost me for the level of insulation I was looking for. At which point I hear him up the stairs chatting away to somebody. And I thought, no, the, no, the worst of it, until my phone rings. And this is his boss to say, eh, Mr. Luke, yes, yes. He said, I understand from a colleague that you're blind. I said, yes. Eh, well, he says, is there anybody there that can help you at the moment? I said, eh, no. Why? And he said, well, because uh, you're not really competent to make a decision on this loft insulation. I said, sorry, you're, you're, I'm not quite sure I'm hearing what you're saying here. Try that again. Oh, no, you're not competent to making a decision about taking loft insulation just by yourself. I said, excuse me, I think you really want to be watching what you're saying here. Uh, are you really telling me that I am incapable of making a decision about how much money I spend on my house in my own terms in my own household? Uh, yes, well, it's for your own protection. I said, excuse me. This is, the, this is 2021. We are not dealing in the dark ages. I am perfectly capable of making this decision. And if you do not uh, let me do this, I will personally kick your man out of my house because, quite frankly, I'm not putting up with this. I said, oh, no, no, it's, it's, well, it's no. I said, sorry. When I agreed to make this decision, I said, we would, he, your guy would come along, give me a quote, and I would go away and think about it. I'm not making a decision today uh, because I don't make decisions like that because it's far too difficult a decision to make. After a short sales pitch, I said, I will take the decision away and I will make a decision. However, my competence in making this decision is neither here nor there to do with blindness or not. So the boy eventually trots down the stairs um, and he comes up with his quote, which I laugh because it's just so ridiculously high. It's just like £5,000 more than I expected it to be. Uh, he then tries to say, oh, well, you could pay it up over five years with a 13% interest rate. I said, mate, I've worked in the insurance industry for the past 25 years on a negative income uh, bank loans policy at the moment. I think I could get a better deal than that. And I said, I will think about your offer, but thank you very much. Uh, so I left the house and I put his offer straight in the bin. <laughs> so there you go. It still exists in this day and age. I think it's ignorance on the part of the companies. And quite frankly, really... It just staggers beyond belief that some people still think we are incapable. Yes, we may not be the world's greatest decision makers, but that's absolutely nothing to do with our ability to see or not. It's all to do with what's between our ears. End of story. Thanks, guys. Cheers. For all things Lozen at large, check out the website where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favourite podcast app, and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosen.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. And once again, we are not hearing the regular Bonnie Bulletin music. We are instead hearing... Oh, no, no, we don't deserve a round of applause yet, but there we go. That'll do it. Yeah. Uh, so 
We're recording another bulletin uh, from the Zoom Podcheck P4, and I have to confess, in the interests of full transparency, this is the second time we've tried this because I pushed the wrong button the other time. Um, but we we've got uh, Bonnie's friend. Well, Bonnie, you can introduce Lisa. Um, this is Lisa Calhoun, and uh, she I've known her for gosh a long time. At least been aware. We actually only met. For the first time in 2016, but I've been on email lists with her and chats and things like that for a very long time. We went to the same university, although not at a different time, had the same writing instructor and also are both seeing eye grads at different times. And wow. Lisa, Lisa is a longtime horse person, longtime race tracker and uh, now has a, a farm in uh, Virginia called Perfect Peace Farm. And, but Lisa's most known for breeding and racing Mark Your Bible, a.k.a. Marcus, who is now happily retired. Yep. And he is the horse that I owned in partnership with Lisa, the main partner, and several other people. And you will remember many conversations about yes, Marcus over because the years. those of us who go back all the way to the very first Mosin Explosion show that you were on when I was broadcasting from the Double Tree in Boston and I said, you should come and do the show. And you said to me then that you were a racehorse owner, and I said, I'm sure you own the main part. So I remember that. Hmm. Calhoun's a very famous American name, isn't it? Yes, Lisa yeah. can speak to that. Now, hello, Lisa. <laughs> yeah, we, should let, we should let you get yeah, a word so in. anything else you yeah. want to add to your bio, Lisa? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's my husband's last name, but, uh, yeah, he uh, traces back to the Calhouns, yes, mm. <laughs> the famous his father traced back to the older brother of John C. Calhoun. And so wow. not the uh, best of. <laughs> that is pretty impressive. But, and I should say just on the technical side that we are on the couch. We are recording on just the Zoom PodTrack P4. We've got Bonnie's iPhone and a cable going into the TRRS input on the P4. So we are using the PodTrack P4 uh, really the way it was intended so that you can bring people in via FaceTime and join in on a discussion. Can I ask you, before we talk about the reason why we gathered you both here, why we gathered you here today in the sight of the Mushroom FM audience, um, what did you guys think of the result of the pregnant? Uh, the pregnant? It was yeah, quite the positive. Yeah. It was positive in my view. Kind of oh, a yes. surprise. It, but yeah. it was exciting. It was a very exciting race. Yeah. Are you glad that Medina's spirit didn't win? You know, I hate to say that because at the end of the day, he's a horse that's loved by many people, the people that take care of him, uh, his owners, his his breeder. And you always yeah. hate to say that you're glad he didn't win. But considering all the controversy that's gone on the past few weeks, uh, it, it was, was good. It was good. At, yeah. Yeah. And it was yeah. good that it was somebody different. It wasn't even a top I mean, we. I mean, in the racing world, we know the trainer, we know of him, but he's an up and comer. But right. he's on his way, and it's yeah. it's good to see. So. Yes, yeah, and a, a rider who was uh, very excited. Um, I'm not. I'm probably going to slaughter his name, uh, Lisa Favia, Favian Pratt. Is that it? Sauvignon Blanc. No, <laughs> he may yeah. like that. He's from France, but uh, he was yeah. so excited when he won. He just yeah. had a smile from ear to ear and just, you know, young rider, up and coming, very top rider. And, and you can see, yeah. I, yeah, you just hear the excitement in his voice. Yeah. and huh? Yeah. So no triple crown this year. Nope. No. 
Which yeah. is actually kind of a good thing because I think if Medina Spirit had gone on to win the Preakness in Belmont, there there could have been, you know, it could have been if if we they, don't need it next to it. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need a, a yeah. disqualification. Or Who knows? Questions. Maybe the yeah. Supreme Court would have got involved, and yeah, yeah. there's already a lawsuit against. Baffert. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Now this segues us nicely into the reason for doing yet another Bonnie Bulletin in this way, partly because it's the latest and greatest hot gadget, but also because we thought we'd bring Lisa in to have a discussion about an email that we received a couple of weeks ago from Peter in Hungary. And he says he's worried about being banned from Mosin at Large for asking this question, but not at all, Peter, because we love a bit of lively, robust discussion, as you know. And Peter says he gathers from all the waffle on the Bonnie Bulletin, although he didn't put it that way, that uh, Bonnie is a big fan of racehorsing, and he doesn't understand how you can be. He says that, you know, he, he really values horses. He appreciates what they can still contribute to agriculture, to various other things, Um the relationship with horses is a very special one often. Uh, they're great animals. They can do various things. But his concern is that no horse wants to run. They are forced to run. His concern is that uh, there's a lot of cruelty involved. And he doesn't really feel like you can call it a sport at all. And uh, now I should say, by way of a bit of a preface, that I've come from a racing background as well because my dad used to own and train racehorses so it's been a part of my culture all my life and um you know particularly on a saturday mum and dad would listen to the races and follow them closely uh, but you know i've certainly heard it said that it is a cruel sport and so i thought i would just hand it on over to you two to give peter an answer to this well i'll just start with just my own experience and then lisa can can chime in with hers I've been around horses all of my life. I got my first pony when I was six and um, read the Black Stallion, read about horse racing and watched my first. The race that I really became aware of watching was when Genuine Risk won the Kentucky Derby in 1980. And I remember the very kind of controversial preakness that year when Codex beat Genuine Risk. And I just was so enthralled and wanted to learn everything that I could about about horse racing and then over the years following it, uh, spending a lot of time on the backstretch at, at, in Kentucky when I was in college there. And people have their views and, of course, they're entitled to their opinion. But my thing is in any industry, in any sport, you are going to have your bad actors, if you will, people that are, are doing things that are not ethical. But racing is, is very, very well policed. You have stewards, you have veterinarians at the track. Just watching today, the Preakness, these horses want to run. That's what they're bred to do. And talking about horses that are on doing the agriculture thing on farms, that sort of thing, they're nowhere n near as well taken care of as, as the race horses. So, you know, I don't think it's a cruel sport. It's cleaned itself up over the last several decades with a lot of aftercare when horses aren't able to race anymore, don't want to race anymore. So a lot of um, aftercare programs to make sure these horses find homes or other careers. A lot of um, the police horses in New York are off the track thoroughbreds. Uh, they go into all kinds of disciplines, showing uh, therapeutic riding. Uh, there are even several programs that teach people how to to care for horses how to care for 
the racehorses, uh, people who have disabilities or people who have uh, been in trouble with the law. So a lot of good has come out of the industry. So, no, I, I don't think that it's a cruel sport at all. And there you go, Lisa. And it over to you now. Okay. So my background, uh, I did not come from a horse and um, I discovered horse racing in 1985 when Spindabuck won the Kentucky Derby. And then I read all the books, The Black Stallion and all of those as well. And uh, after high school, I took a year off from schooling uh, before I went off to college. And I worked actually in the industry. I worked on several different farms. I was a groom at the track. I exercise road. I trained yearlings and being around them when they were young before they were actually at the track, they would race each other in the field. You turn the yearlings out or even the babies out with their mothers and they're just running across the field at top speed trying to see who can get to the gate first. You know, if you're standing at the gate, they're just, they see you and they want to, and they start racing each other. I, I saw them after I turned them loose, do laps and they almost seemed like they created their own starting and finish lines. And as soon as they were done and a winner was determined, they went to graze the grass, but they, they wanted to run first. So when Bonnie says it's what they're bred for, it's, it's instinct to just run and want to run. And having raised many babies now over the years, it's as soon as they can get outside and run, they're running. And when they're retired, like I have Marcus now and his sister as well, um, Glory, uh, they go out there and they, they run. They, you know, they're in their teens now and they still enjoy racing one another and just having fun. They're wheeling and neighing and having just a blast doing it. So if a horse doesn't want to run, they're not going to. Um, they're a big animal. You cannot force them to. And they can sometimes figure this out before they get to the racetrack. And other times they don't know until they actually put them in a race for the first time. At least two of the yearlings that I can remember training at one particular farm raced only one time and that was it. They, they finished last and they just didn't want to do the job and they were retired and found a home for. And when a horse does decide they want to do the job and race, once they show you that they're done, the workers and the trainers, the exercise riders, the grooms, everybody's paying attention. Once that horse doesn't want to do the job, it is retired. Um, they're not going to force it to. You know, there's cases of horses when the starting gate opens at the beginning of the race, they just stand there. They don't take off from the starting gate. They just don't go. And they can show many different ways to the people around them that they don't want to do the job anymore. So these animals are loved. And if they if the horse is not happy in the job, it's not forced the whipping, it, that's not going to hurt them and it's not going to make them go faster. It, it might tell them to go faster. It's a cue to go faster, but it's not going to make them go faster. They, you know, if a fast horse is going to be no faster than its legs will actually go. You cannot make them run faster than they're wanting to go. 
And there are no regulations, aren't there, regarding how you can use a riding crop um, so that yeah. they're, not, they're not hurt. Yes. And there are penalties and, of, if, in fact, it's found that that has happened. Yes. Uh, so here in the United States, it does vary state to state, but there are regulations of how many times they can be tapped uh, with the, the whip. Some people call it a whip. Some people call it a crop. Um, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, it makes more of a noise than it does actually cause pain. You can hit yourself with it and it will not hurt you. It just makes a loud pop. Perhaps I should do that when I press the wrong button. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hit by one of these. It doesn't really hurt. It's more of a sting and a surprise. <laughs> yeah. And, and they count how many times the rider uses it. In, throughout the entire race and especially on the home stretch. And if the rider exceeds it too much, they can be fined. I know it varies per jurisdiction and it could be like, for instance, one place may say it's 10 times. And if they feel that it's excessive, that's actually what they call it, excessive whip use. And the jockey is fined and they can even be suspended if it's overly excessive. They will get fined if they actually do put a mark on the horse. If if they have hit so hard that they've actually caused a welt on the horse, they will get in trouble. But these crops or whips are designed not – I mean, it would take a lot of force to do that, to leave a mark on the horse. I'm, I'm saying it's possible, but it would require a ton of force to do so. And you use it also to cue them to change their leads. They do have a certain footfall pattern and they can actually change that football pattern and it uses the muscles of their body differently when they switch those leads and it helps them if they're getting tired to switch their leads to use other muscles. So they are using the crop to te to tell them time to change your leads so that you can get a little burst of energy. Yeah. Also, Lisa, you um, in another conversation a few weeks ago when we were having this discussion about the the whip rule changes, particularly in New Jersey, we're describing how it's used to change the lead with the horse, but also why a jockey has to use it because of the way they sit on the horse, which a lot of people who aren't familiar with racing don't understand because they're used to seeing cowboys that are just astride and yeah. can kick the horse. So if you would speak to that, yeah. that would be great. Sure. A typical rider has their legs fully on a horse, hanging down along the rib cage, and they're able to press the side of their calf into the horse to squeeze gently to encourage a horse to go faster. And when you are in a show ring, for instance, you can use, say, your right leg to get them to move their body in a certain way. And you, and depending on where your position of that leg is, you can t tell them, I want you to move your shoulder or I can want you to move your hip depending on where your leg is on their body. And they learn to move their body to that position of your leg and, and they learn to give in and move and it helps them. Well, a jockey needs to be up higher and their stirrups are very, very short and they are almost what you would consider almost a fetal up on top of these horses. That's almost how it looks. I mean, their knees are in chest and they're on their, their toes and the stirrups are only hanging down 
maybe about six inches off the side of the horse um, from their back. And so their legs are not touching the horse very much at all. And so they need to use the crop to tap the horse if they need to help tell it to move over along with the reins. And, And it just gives them a little extra control to give cues to the horse of what they want the horse to do. It's not just for going faster. It is for you need to move to the left because there's a horse in front and you're not wanting to move. And I really need you to move to the left because we're going to have a problem if you don't move to the left right now. You know, One of the things that has gone mainstream, though, is that in recent memory, there was that spate of horse deaths at one single racetrack in the United States. And that got quite a lot of press. If yes. there's no cruelty going on, why are horses dying in that way? So on occasion, um, the track surface, it can go bad and they don't realize it and i believe there they had a drainage issue problem there in california and a lot of drought recently yeah yeah and then they had a ton of rain Mm -hmm. and it just it messed with the base of the track and so it ended up making the the track surface unsafe and nobody realized it until it was too late then what they ended up doing is they closed the track down and they totally redid the track surface and tore up it all the way down to the base and started over and created a new surface. And since they have done that, they have had no tra- uh, no deaths um, at that particular track. That was Santa Anita in California. Hmm. Uh, they just had this happen in at Laurel Park in Maryland. And they're redoing that now. So they, they do pay attention when there starts to becoming injuries. They try to figure out, okay, what could be the problem? And sometimes it is the surface and then they need to totally do an overhaul of the track surface. And other times it's other issues. Occasionally it has been a particular trainer has a big string of deaths and they start trying to figure out, okay, is he feeding something? What's he doing differently that the other trainers are not doing? What's what's causing this? Um, so they, they start investigations and try to look into to see if they see a pattern. I suppose it's also true to say that there are varying degrees of animal rights <laughs> advocacy, aren't there? Yes. Because there are even people who believe that any kind of use of animals for human advancement or pleasure or whatever is wrong, including guide dogs. I Absolutely. mean, there are some people in, in Peter, not to be confused with Peter, who's actually mm-hmm. asking, <laughs> asking this question, yes. uh, who, who think that uh, it's morally wrong to use dogs as, as uh, guide dogs. Yeah, and the animal rights people, what they don't do is they tend to be very reactionary. They won't listen to a lot of reason from people who actually know what's going on. They'll be out there protesting. I think there was a big protest at Golden Gate Fields last year. They were shutting down a vaccine center, you know, because yeah. they wanted the, they were nowhere near the horses. And um, so a lot of them, they, they won't listen to reason. They have their ideas and yeah. they're not, they're very radical and they won't listen to the fact that, as Lisa just described, racing's aware of what's going on. There are stewards that watch every single race. There are track veterinarians out there. So they know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. They have at least three veterinarians on the track at any given time. Mm-hmm. So. 
And when yeah. something happens, and it always kind of raises its ugly head when something happens, because it does make national news when Eight Bells broke down after the Derby. And then, of course, uh, Barbara, who made national headlines, became kind of a national hero. But you don't hear the good stories. You don't hear how Santa Anita did fix the problem. Those stories don't they they don't do the good stories. Yeah, I mean that's the nature of news, isn't it? it? Is. it, it, it is. News is something exceptional that has happened and, and so you do tend to hear the bad yeah, stuff. Yeah, and there's so many good things in racing and how racing is a community. It's 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 actually one big family and the backstretch workers, which they sometimes call the invisible workforce, the majority of them are are immigrants and they do a lot with providing scholarships for the children, for themselves, yeah. providing medical care, eye care for them, a lot of recreational activities, uh, counseling yeah. services. and um, They have a path to citizenship. I know Delaware Park, for instance, one of the places Marcus raced, and I visited the backstretch there multiple times. They have a preschool. They have a daycare. They have housing. They offer health care. It's a community back there. It is not just stables for horses. It is so much more. You know, the big buzzword now is social justice. So racing's been doing it a lot longer than a lot of people. Well, there you yeah. go. There's the defense. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see whether Peter is convinced or not. And I'm sure that there are arguments on either side of this oh, yeah. on I'm, the web. And um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think people are entitled to their opinion. And you, you can't fault them for that. But I also yeah. think being informed, too. Yeah. And racing has its issues. I mean, I'm not going to deny that it doesn't, but every it, everything has its issues. And it is up to us to, when we see a issue, to call them out and hold them to the fire that, okay, you're doing something wrong and we need to clean this up. I mean, every industry, every sport has its rogue players, doesn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. looking at just when Lisa was talking earlier about the horses that didn't want to race and they'd stand in the stall, it also reminded me of incidents during races where the jockeys come off and the horses kept running. And even won the race, which, of course, they, they didn't get the purse money because they were riderless. But that shows you how much that they want to be in it. And talking about it being cruel, because I'm very, very pro-jockey rights. And it's a very dangerous sport. It's actually the most dangerous. It's the only one or one of the few ones that an ambulance follows you around. And, you know, you're looking at a 110, 112-pound person up on a 1,200-pound animal going at 40 miles an hour. They don't want to come off. They want to see safety because the, the accidents can be catastrophic. It can be paralysis or there was a rider killed today uh, overseas, I believe, in a fall. So it's dangerous. And one thing that racing's doing is working with other sports like football because concussion is a very common injury. And working to prevent this, yeah. Well, thank you both very much for such a comprehensive answer. Whether Peter considers it satisfactory, I do not know, but we've certainly addressed it, and yeah. you're still welcome to get in touch oh, with absolutely. us, Oh, absolutely, and Lisa <laughs> and I are very both very open about discussing it and, you know, having a respectful conversation, so feel free to hit us up. Thank you both, yeah. and thank you for helping us take this uh, PodTrack P4 for a spin. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Luis, in the subject line to this message, says playing internet stations in iOS 14.5 got broken. He says, hi, Jonathan. First of all, I want to thank you for the Mosin at Large podcast. Every time I listen to a new episode, 
I think how generous you are to share your time and knowledge with the blind community. Well done, Jonathan. Giving to others is a very rewarding experience. Thanks for those kind comments, Louise. He continues, I recently updated to iOS 14.5, but I am not happy with this update. Playing radio stations got broken again, or at least it is not working as smoothly as it worked in previous versions of iOS 14. Specifically, every time I ask Siri to play a station, it asks me what app should it use to play the station. Apparently, this sounds good since it expands the choices where a station can be played. But iOS very often doesn't remember what app it uses to play such a station, and it keeps asking you the app that it should use. Furthermore, Siri often fails to play stations that are in tune-in, mistakenly indicating that such station can't be found when indeed it is on TuneIn. Finally, the Shortcuts app shows potential TuneIn shortcuts, but when you try to configure them, they simply don't work. Thanks, Louise. I think what you're seeing is Apple responding to increasing concerns about antitrust-type behavior, and they don't want to just automatically send you to Apple Music or Apple Podcasts when you might prefer a different app. It's a much more complex problem to solve than the one of which should your default browser be, because you can tell the operating system that every web page you go to, you want by default to choose whatever browser you personally like. But if you give Siri the instruction to play something, Siri really has to know whether that thing you're asking for is a podcast, a radio station, a song that you might want to access from a streaming music service. It's beyond the capability of artificial intelligence to really know these things. And as a result, it is asking you much more frequently than would be the case with other types of queries like this, what you want to play it with. Now, I'm running the beta of iOS 14.6, and it may be wishful thinking on my part, but I think it is learning better. For example, I listen to quite a bit of BBC Radio 4, and for a while it was saying, which app did I want to use? I said Apple Music. And now it always plays BBC Radio 4 on Apple Music. Just to see what would happen, I said a couple of times, play BBC Radio 4 on TuneIn, which it duly did. And then after that, every time I just said, play BBC Radio 4, it automatically played it on TuneIn. I really like this feature, because if you choose not to subscribe, say, to Apple Music, it learns pretty quickly that it should use an alternative app, be it Spotify or Deezer or one of the others, to play your streaming music selection. It is a complex area, but I'm prepared to cut Apple a bit of slack. I think this is definitely a move for the better. We just have to let them perfect the queries a little bit. And for those using HomePod, it's particularly exciting because it looks like HomePod is opening up to a number of other streaming music services. And I see that Deezer, which offers a hi-fi lossless streaming music service, is coming to HomePod. So it's great that you'll be able to make sure that Siri understands that by default, when you ask for a song, you want it played on Deezer, the lossless music service. Hello, my friend from New Zealand, writes Pascal. Writing to you from Long Island, New York. I listen to your podcast on occasions and recently heard one of the episodes about your hearing aids. I hear you were very satisfied with the Oticon Open S1 model. 
I am currently trying out the newest Oticon more. Do you find that your hearing aids tune into one particular sound a bit much at times? I tend to notice this happening when my surroundings become a bit complex. Thank you for writing in, Pascal. We have discussed the Oticon More hearing aids in a previous episode when a listener wrote in who was also evaluating them, and I think he made a similar comment that he felt they tended to tune in to particular sounds a bit much, and he was working with audiologists to get that tweaked. I didn't hear how he got on, so I'd love to hear another report. My understanding is that the Oticon More hearing aids use quite a different paradigm from the Oticon Open S1s that I have, and I haven't noticed this problem with these particular hearing aids. Do keep us posted on how you get on with these aids. There's a lot of interest in them. Hello, Jonathan, it's Grace here. I just forgot your name. Fancy me forgetting your name. My goodness. Last night on More Than At Large, you were talking about bullying. Now, I've got a couple of things to share with you, Jonathan. I feel that I can share this with you. And I was talking to me about this. And uh, she said, yeah, I think you should tell Jonathan about it. And I said, well, I feel I would like to share this. Two things that happened to me. Well, one thing happened when I, I think I was around about 18. Um, when I used to travel by bus, uh, one of the conductors that, that used to travel on the bus, he was very nice and he always spoke to me. And uh, there was one day I went on the bus uh, and uh, he said, there's no um, front seat, you can't get a front seat because I usually sat at the front seat. So he said, you'll have to sit up the back. We're a very busy bus and I thought, okay, that's fine. So he took me to the back seat and then the next thing he said, well, he said, um, there's there's more people coming. He said, I'll uh, I'll uh, go and take the fare and I'll come back and chat to you. So I thought, that's fine. Uh, that's okay. So he came up the back, the bus, and uh, he said to me, he said, um, I've got something to show you. And I said, to show me? And I never thought anything of this. So what had happened is he got his penis out and he put my hand on it and it was really hard and I was scared. So I slapped him so hard and uh, I said, don't you ever do that again to me. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, he said, now this is our secret. You've not to tell anybody about this. So I thought, well, okay. I was so scared, Jonathan, I didn't say anything. Uh, and then another time, uh, <clears throat> another time, um, well, I should say eventually, I told my mum about it, that the, the conductor, he, he has now died, thank God. Uh, but um, my mum said, I wish she'd said something, but she said, you'd be so scared to say something. But my mum was upset when I told her about it. And then uh, one another time I was on the bus and there was a drunk man and he was getting off the bus and he kicked my guide dog. My dog wasn't doing anything. She was just lying at my feet and he kicked my guide dog and the police came to see... The, the driver stopped the bus and got the police. The police came on the bus and arrested him and took him away to prison, to Stockton Prison. And the police came to see me next day and he was lovely, the policeman, and he said, I'm really sorry this happened to your guide dog. So with you talking about bullying, it just all came back to and I'm glad 
that I can share this with you because, uh, you know, I just felt it was right to share it. Well, thank you, Grace. I'm sitting here wincing listening to that. That is just a horrific, well, both of them are horrific stories, particularly the first one, I have to say. It's just so contrived and manipulative and horrible. So I, I really am sorry that that happened to you. And that sort of thing never goes away, does it? I hope that these days there is much less tolerance of that sort of behavior. But I know that there's still a lot of fear out there about that sort of thing. So really sorry to hear that that happened to you. Like the show? Then why not like it on Facebook too? Get upcoming show announcements, useful links, and a bit of conversation. Head on over now to facebook.com slash large. That's facebook.com slash M-O-S-E-N at large to stay connected between episodes. John Wesley Smith is in touch on the email and he says, I belong to a writer's group called Behind Our Eyes, which participates in the Amazon Smile program. Recently, I received an email from Amazon Smile promoting their Amazon mobile app as a place to sign up for the Smile program. Included was a set of instructions for app users to sign up. I would like to post those instructions on our two websites. However, I'm not certain how blind-friendly those instructions are. Furthermore, I'm not even sure how accessible the Amazon app is. I don't use it myself and don't plan to anytime soon. I prefer to negotiate Amazon on my desktop. I'm reaching out to anyone who uses the Amazon app because I need your insight. Could you help me craft a set of instructions for signing up with Amazon Smile using accessible smartphone technology? The instructions I've seen online for using voiceover are brief and vague. Is there more to it than that? Below, I've pasted the instructions I've found. They say, open the app and find settings in the main menu. Tap on Amazon Smile and follow the on-screen instructions to turn on Amazon Smile on your phone. End quote. If anyone can share a yay or nay to these guidelines, or if someone can give further directions, I would appreciate it. Thanks to all for your help. Andy Smith is talking about text-to-speech engines and specifically Keynote Gold. And he says, hey, my dude which is exactly what my youngest son says to me. He says, someone brought up the Keynote Gold, and may I say, man, I agree. It was an amazing synthesizer. There was also a dictionary that used it somehow, the Franklin Language Master. It was strange, though, because it pronounced every word as its own sentence. For example, this is a test. I'm not sure if it was recorded speech or it actually had the chip or what, but it was cool. I used the Brown Odom Power, I had a QT and later a BT, and just loved Keynote Gold. I remember listening to a detailed description distributed on CD of the Empower's hardware where you describe how the only thing lost was the parallel port. You used talks with a Nokia phone for something, maybe to demonstrate Bluetooth, I'm not sure, etc. I didn't know that there was a software Keynote Gold. It's a shame that it can't be ported to 64-bit. I'd buy it to keep using it. 
I remember the empire getting eloquent and it lagged slightly, which is one of the reasons I kept using Keynote Gold with it. Eventually, it broke, and my needs simply outgrew the product, particularly with Word documents, etc. But man, I really do miss Keynote Gold. As for your proud-to-be-blind speech, I was on my treadmill and was literally crying listening to it. I've sent it to a few email lists, and I think some people are going to read it at various support groups. Very inspirational and true. Thanks for all you do for this show, especially with your busy schedule. Stay well, sir. Thank you, Andy. That's very, very kind. And I do wonder if someone at Humanware has got the source code for Keynote Gold, the software version, and whether we might be able to persuade them to bring it back. I do wonder how many people would buy it, though. I think it probably is quite an acquired taste. If there are some people who are tiring of eloquence these days, I can only imagine that the number of people who would be interested in Keynote Gold would be very small. Here's Christopher Wright, who says, I initially refused the use of wheelchairs, but after being ignored by airport employees for extended periods of time, I decided to go with the flow. I was returning to Houston from World Services for the Blind in December and had to wait about 10 to 20 minutes to get someone to walk me to my luggage. I don't fly very often, so I don't need or really want to learn the layout of a building I'll visit extremely infrequently or never again. Yes, it's not ideal, but I get to where I need to go much faster. I don't have the time or patience to deal with incompetent airport employees. I have bigger fish to fry. The thing I found interesting was the fact the employees were apparently bending over backwards to help all kinds of other people but they ignored me as a white blind man standing there trying to get someone's attention. Once again, I have to ask why blind people aren't included in the diversity initiative. I'm genuinely curious. Diversity sounds great on the surface, but my experience has been that it's a code word for anti-white and or anti-heterosexual. Maybe we should start virtual signaling blindness just like everyone else is doing in all forms of modern media and shunning those who are anti-blind. It's what the left does all the time to anyone who opposes them, so why don't we do it too? If we're truly diverse, I should be respected as a blind person, being a Trump supporter, and generally being a good person. You don't have to agree with all my views, but you should be able to accept the fact I think a particular way, just as I do for you. It seems to me there's a set of rules for the left and a totally different set for the rest of us. I don't say these things to be racist, xenophobic, etc. I'm simply trying to understand why we can't all get along. I treat everyone the way I want to be treated. And while I may not always agree with you, I would never attempt to shut you down because something you said hurt my feelings. Why are the people that preach tolerance and acceptance the most intolerant people ever? Again, these are genuine questions I'd like answers to. Then again, there are certain statistics and other information that you're not supposed to talk about or else you might get banned. So maybe I'll never truly know. Most of the time, I want people to leave me alone with my computers and fantasy books because so much of the world makes me sad. 
I was originally very doubtful of your speech on blind pride, but the more I think about it, the more I agree with you. Being blind is certainly a major pain, but there are definitely advantages which you outlined in your speech. Having lived my entire 23 years thus far, being totally blind, I have no desire to change it. I don't long for sight because it will make me more accepted in society. Truth be told, I don't care what most people think of me. Those that know me know I'm a good person. If you can't get past the fact that I'm blind, oh well. There are billions of other people in the world, and I'm sure I'll find a soul or two I can truly connect with someday. As I said a while ago, being blind has given me a different perspective on the world, and aside from instances where the information barrier rears its ugly head, it's been wonderful. Thank you for that term, by the way. I've said it before, but it's such an accurate description of blindness. Thanks very much for your email, Christopher. And I have a number of questions that come out of it. I guess the first one is, how do you know that the weight that you incurred was because you were white? That seems like an extraordinary assertion to make. I do agree with you that the quality of the dialogue and the discourse in the United States has become really dysfunctional in a very concerning way. And I think that many people outside the United States just can't get their head around how dysfunctional it's become. But it is difficult to have meaningful dialogue when people just ignore evidence. This nonsense that has no basis in fact about the election being stolen, the fact that there was an insurrection on the 6th of January that now certain elements don't want to confront and hold an inquiry into, all of those things make dialogue very difficult because if you can agree on a common set of facts, then you can argue about what those facts mean. But if people make things up, it is really difficult to find consensus then because there's no basis of reality to begin a discussion about. Disability is often neglected when it comes to discussions about diversity, but we're not going to change that, and nor should we, by invalidating the very real needs of people who've been neglected over time as well. I had a really meaningful experience when I was working in the government relations field in the 1990s. For New Zealanders who are listening, I will mention the woman's name who I met. Her name was Tariana Turia. She has been an activist for issues relating to Māori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, all her life. And she became a member of parliament, and I went to see her in my capacity as the manager of government relations for the Blind Foundation then. And she said to me, Māori and disabled people have so much in common. We've had other people making decisions about us without consulting us. We don't have our autonomy respected. We need to find common issues where we can work together and support each other. And I absolutely agree with that. As somebody who faces discrimination and being underestimated, isn't it hypocrisy to the extreme, insensitive and pretty disgusting, to rail against other minorities who have also suffered similar problems, rather than saying, don't forget us either. Let's all work together for a more equitable society. 
What we are talking about is not a zero-sum game. We want a society where we realize that when any of us can't contribute to our maximum potential for whatever reason, then we've all failed. It's easy, completely easy, but very unconstructive to demonize people with words like left or right. You can use code words like woke, politically correct, or virtue signaling. But I think the question every person has to ask themselves is, what have we personally done today to make our lot better? It doesn't have to be some big grand thing. Not everybody is in a position to do political advocacy. Not everybody feels comfortable doing it. But if you can do something, even if it's contacting respectfully an app developer or talking to an airport about the quality of assistance they provide in a constructive way, you've then become a tiny bit of the solution rather than lashing out at other people further dividing people into categories and creating enemies where, in fact, there should be allies. The choice about how we choose to advance our cause is ours individually. And when we make the right choices individually to make sure that we have a more accepting society with less prejudice and less bigotry for us all, then we're all going to win. Hey, Jonathan, this is John Nuanis in Los Angeles. I want to thank you for the wonderful podcast. Uh, appreciate it very much. I also want to comment on one of the things I like about your podcast is the way you present both sides of all issues, how respectful you are of people who disagree with you. Um, and you, when you give opinions that I disagree with, you present them thoughtfully. And you make me, if not change my mind, at least think about what you're saying and more of us should be like that, and I wish more politicians were like that these days. The reason for my call, and I know you've discussed this ad infinitum, but it's about the wheelchair at the airport. And I kept thinking back about 20 years ago when I was at one of the busiest airports in the world, Heathrow Airport. I'm a very frequent flyer. I've flown in and out of Heathrow and many other airports many times. On this occasion, I was visiting a friend in London, flying back to Los Angeles, and I asked for a sighted guide to assist me to the gate. And I was shocked when they brought a wheelchair. Um, and I went through many of the things that you and other listeners have talked about. I don't need a wheelchair. I'm perfectly capable of walking. I would have been embarrassed to, you know, take a wheelchair from someone who needed it, et cetera, et cetera. The attendant said something to me. I wish I could remember his exact words, but essentially it was words to the effect, please, sir, trust me, this is better if you take the wheelchair. Uh, whatever it was he said or how he said it, I gave in and I sat in a wheelchair, a little mortified, whatever, and proceeded to be whisked through Heathrow Airport faster than I ever have before or since. He was so efficient at maneuvering me through through uh, security, et cetera, et cetera. And at the, as we were going through, I learned two things. Number one, I didn't know you could get through Heathrow that fast. I've never done it since, as I said. But more importantly, one of the things he said is, you know, sir, one of the reasons I do it this way is because it frees me up to help other people who need assistance. And we only have so much time and so many customers. And by sitting in this chair, you give me that extra time so I can help somebody else. And that has always stayed with me. I will not ask for a wheelchair, and, uh, you know, I, I don't, hopefully will never need a wheelchair. But if one is brought from now on, uh, I will probably sit in it, just for that reason alone. And another comment quickly, 
someone said, look, we're not the example for all blind people in the world. We don't have to set the example. I'm an individual. Um, you know, what I do is what I do. And I agree with that totally. However, all of us are examples for everybody else. Do, am I supposed to be the example for all blind people? No, uh, nor are you or anybody else. But we all, to a certain extent, set an example for other people. So when we refuse to take a seat on a subway because we can stand, as I have done or I used to do, uh, that's fine. However, what I learned from my sister-in-law when my brother refused to sit in a chair when he was using his white cane is that, you know, you're blocking the aisle on you sometimes and you don't realize it. By sitting down, you're making it more efficient for other people. Again, my basic point is, you know, sometimes this assistant isn't just for us. It's for everyone else. It's for the whole community, sighted, uh, wheelchair-bound, able-bodied, etc. So sometimes it's okay to do something that we don't like. Um, it's also okay to not take the wheelchair. I respect those of you who don't want it, and I respect all your reasons. But I think sometimes we have to stop and think about the big picture and maybe on those occasions, you'll take the chair in the subway, the chair in the subway, or take the wheelchair. Again, those are my thoughts. I'm, I don't know if I'm going to change anybody's minds, but I wanted people to think about uh, that we're not we're not an island. No man is an island. What we do affects a lot of people. Thanks very much, John. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. I want to tease this out a little bit because I'm not convinced by one core aspect of this. And that is that somehow it's faster if a blind person sits in a wheelchair than it is if a blind person is being guided by someone. Because you can only walk as fast as the person pushing the wheelchair can walk. And when you don't have the burden of the chair to maneuver, you may be able to walk faster without the chair, assuming you don't have any issues walking, than with the chair. So it sounds to me like this Heathrow dude is making an assumption about the speed with which a blind person can walk. Mosin at Large Podcast! Here's some poetry. It's from Marsha Yale, and she says, Inspired by your contributor's monologue, I wrote this poem pasted below in 2007 as a rant. Your contributor made the same comments. The second. Please give me back the second. The second it takes to hear the traffic move at the beginning of a cycle. Why should I trust you more than the traffic patterns? The second it takes to hear where the nearest subway door is. Yes, I can hear them open and would rather make my own choice. The second it takes me to verify the direction of an escalator. There is a convenient way to do this. It's not rocket science. The second it takes to find the beginning of a staircase. That's what my white cane is for. The second it takes to turn around after passing that landmark. Then again, maybe I was enjoying the walk. The second it takes to find the door. It's often easier if I open my own doors, then I know where the door actually is. The second it takes to avoid your groping hands. I often wish I could return the favour and grope you too. The second it takes to avoid the probing questions. Why did you need to know where I am going? The second it takes to be independent, unless that's too much to ask. Sandra is in Germany and writes, Hi Jonathan and fellow listeners. I just heard you read the listener's email who suggested spelling blind with a capital B. I've never heard about this idea, but I think it's brilliant. 
Deaf people do it. Black people do it when they claim their adjectives as part of their identity and reject the negative connotations connected to them when hearing or white people use them in contexts that are demeaning. So I think spelling blind with a capital B absolutely makes sense. Thanks for creating an opportunity for us to exchange ideas like this. On Twitter, follow Mosin at Large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news and links to things we talk about on the podcast. That's Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter. Hi, Jonathan. I just wanted to tell you about the exercise bike I bought about six weeks ago, which I'm really happy with. A bit about why I decided to get it. Um, I've not been to work for over a year, not been to the office for over a year. Um, And when I did go, I used to walk for about 40, 45 minutes a day. And when lockdown started, I tried um, going out every day for a similar amount of time, but I just got bored of going to the same place, you know, doing block routes. Um, and I thought I'd better do something. And I thought an exercise bike would be a good bet. And I thought it'd be a lot quieter than the treadmill and it would be something I could just uh, get on and off as and when for a few minutes. So I did a lot of research, particularly looking at uh, Peloton bikes. But the bike I got, which is an Echelon Sport, E-C-H-E-L-O-N Sport, compared incredibly favourably with Peloton. It is very quiet. I'm, I'm cycling now. I don't know if you can hear it. Um, you should be able to, very faintly, but it's very quiet. It doesn't move around and... It's just great. I really love it. Um, and also, it cost about £800. The Peloton I was looking at was nearly £3,000. So that was another reason to get it. And it's got an app as well that you can subscribe to. The longer you subscribe for, the less it costs. Um, I paid for two years, I think, three or £400, I think. And it has classes on it, different classes, yoga, cycling, running. And you can also play what are called scenic uh, rides, where I guess what's on the screen on your phone would be a, a cityscape or the view as you were driving, uh, sorry, cycling up a mountain or along a beach or whatever. Some of them have music, some of them don't. Some of them are guided, so you have an instructor giving you um, instructions, telling you when to speed up and slow down. But the ones I like really are, are where you put them on for a half an hour, 30, 35 minutes, and they've got music on and you uh, can cycle along with them and look at the calories you're burning off. You can use the app to set the resistance. Well, no, not to set it, to tell you what the resistance is. There's a knob um, in front of the seat which you turn and the app will tell you the resistance. You can also look at the leaderboard. There's a leaderboard and you can look at how other people are doing. I don't do that because it's very fiddly and it doesn't look particularly accessible to me. But the app's great and then it stores the information. So that's just one suggestion anyway in response to the person asking about exercise bikes. Thanks for a a fantastic show. Thanks for all the brilliant information you continually give out. Speak to you all soon. Thank you. Well, thank you. That is Sunil with that comment. And he is obviously one fit dude, I tell you. Wow. I just looked it up and Echelon bikes are available in New Zealand, whereas Peloton bikes are not. So this is really intriguing. He also does add in an email that the bike does not come with a tablet. So there's a groove at the top of the bike where you can add your own. And that's fine because most of us already have a device that we could use for that purpose. (laughs) 
To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin FM.